Hello again. So over the course of this retreat so far, Di and I have mentioned a few times that the overall arc of this practice is from clinging and resisting <coughs> to release. In other words, from dukkha, from unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering, to increasing happiness, contentment, ease, peace, freedom. So now we're on day four of the retreat. I just wanted to check, how's that going? (laughs) Now, it's possible that you haven't been abiding consistently in calm and clarity and contentment and so on. But we know, we've heard, all of you have experienced at least some moments of some degree of greater calm and quiet and ease and peace even at times amidst plenty of experiences that were not like that, that were more in the terrain of the five hindrances. And in spite of that, or maybe because of that, because of your willingness to work with the hindrances, Di and I, we've both been hearing firsthand some of the new insights, the new understandings that each of you have already been developing in in a relatively short time. So I want to acknowledge and appreciate that aspect of the practice, that even when our experience is uncomfortable, painful, challenging, some of the deepest understandings and insights actually come from those experiences. So this evening I'd like to hone in on some of the benefits that we can experience in relation to these difficulties even when we might think that our practice isn't going well. And one of the challenges of assessing our practice from the inside is that default tendency to judge what feels good as being success and what feels bad as failure. So when we talked about the feeling tones, the second establishment of mindfulness yesterday, knowing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral Vedana, I was re-remembering just how strong that assumption is, that pleasant experiences equate to good meditation and unpleasant experiences equate to bad meditation. Now that in itself is already quite a distortion. But from there, when there's no mindfulness, we tend to take those concepts of good and bad personally and to identify with them and make ourselves into a good or a bad meditator. And this is just another example of something that I mentioned briefly the other day, the constructing tendency of the mind, or more specifically, the self-constructing tendency of the mind. And that self-constructing is a very powerful source of dukkha, of suffering, if we don't understand that process as a process and instead take it to be reality. So I mentioned the other day how in some ways the Buddha was a master of deconstruction. His teachings show us just how that whole self-constructing process happens in a kind of chain reaction from sense contact to feeling tone, Vedana, 
to different kinds of perception, liking and disliking, wanting and not wanting, clinging and resisting, and all the other forms of reactivity that generally spiral around a sense of me at the center of it all. So some of you have been observing how quickly the mind takes that raw data of sense contacts and feeling tones, interprets interprets them with perceptions, and then constructs all kinds of thought worlds. And then we step into those thought worlds and inhabit them as if they were inherently true and real rather than something we ourselves have fabricated. Now, this whole process wouldn't be an issue if the stories that we tell ourselves were benign. But as many of you know from your own experience, a lot of the thought patterns, the proliferations that we get caught in, they're painful. And although we might be able to recognize on an intellectual level to some extent, that we're doing this to ourselves. Often that intellectual understanding isn't quite strong enough to help the pattern release. So tonight I thought it might be helpful just to talk about some, a few examples of some very common afflictive thought patterns that sadly they occur in almost all the communities that I teach in around the world. And I'd like to explore some of the ways of working with these very deep-rooted and painful mental habits using the template of the two wings to awakening that I brought in last night, namely wisdom and compassion. So, are you ready? This is a huge area to try to cover in just one short Dharma talk. So I'm going to try to keep it focused on just a few examples that when you hear more about them soon might be familiar to you. So I'm naming specific afflictive patterns and just looking a little at three of them. Three that I call lack mind, comparing mind and the inner critic. And I'll share some of the ways these patterns tend to show up and then I'll offer some antidotes that might help them to soften and release. And then hopefully you might be able to apply similar strategies to whatever specific thought patterns might be common for you. Okay, so just a quick look at the first pattern, which is lack mind. And this involves self-beliefs about basically not being good enough, not being worthy, not having what it takes, not getting it right, being deficient in various ways. So I call this syndrome lack mind for short. That's lack as in L-A-C-K. And it can show up as a sense of just being fundamentally flawed or insufficient, inadequate, both as a person and also in terms of one's life. So nothing we experience or achieve is fully satisfying because there's always something more that we could or should be doing could or should be having or attaining or being. So I don't know if any of you recognize flavors of that one at times. And in some ways, it's the next pattern is closely allied or rooted in lack mind. And it's a variation of it known as comparing mind. 
And comparing mind is that very common human tendency to assess oneself in relation to others and to see whether we're better than, worse than, or equal to them. And this one has a long history. So even the Buddha back in India 2,600 years ago, he recognized comparing mind. And in the Pali language, it's known as mana. And the symptoms of comparing minds, probably pretty obvious, being constantly aware of what other people are doing, and then hyper-aware of how we are in comparison. And often that awareness is accompanied by an inner monologue about how well or how badly we're doing relative to those other people. Well, sometimes comparing mind shows up in relation to other people, Actually, pretty much always in relation to other people. Wherever there are people, there's comparing mind. <laughs> so whether it's in our families, our workplaces, our communities, our neighborhoods, or sanghas, whenever there's more than one person, comparing mind tends to show up. So these tendencies are also closely associated with the inner critic, or the inner tyrant. And that's the that hypervigilant internal judge where some people monitors everything they do and tends to assess it generally pretty harshly as wrong, bad, useless, and so on. Not surprisingly, that strengthens all kinds of other afflictive mind states and emotions. Inadequacy, low self-esteem, depression, shame, and so on. It's painful even to hear about it. It's painful to speak about it. So I don't know how you're feeling, but we just can feel the burden of these states. It's painful even to hear me name them now, let alone to live with them for many people so much of the time. So maybe you're already wondering, let's get to the antidote. (laughs) How do we get out of these painful states? Well, we will get there. I just feel like it's important to lay out the territory a little bit first. But as a sneak preview, I'll be bringing in techniques from both Vipassana and the Brahma-Vihara practices. So just coming back to lack mind for a, a moment or two, that sense of not having enough, not being good enough, being inadequate, unlovable, fundamentally flawed. One place I've noticed this showing up on retreat is in the practice meetings with the teachers. And for myself, having done quite a few longer retreats, and in the course of those retreats, I actually had hundreds of practice meetings with different teachers. I can say from first-hand experience that the symptoms of lack mind tend to show up not only before the practice meeting during the practice meeting and then after the practice meeting. So first there's that obsessive rehearsing about what you're going to say before the meeting, sometimes for hours, and sometimes this rehearsing starts days before the actual meeting. And then during the meeting it can show up as varying degrees of anxiety, agitation, embarrassment, inadequacy that makes it hard to take in whatever the teacher might be saying. And then after the meeting, 
sometimes hours of rehashing what you did and said, wondering whether you sounded completely stupid or ignorant, and why the teacher looked at you with that strange expression, (laughs) and whether they were just pretending to be encouraging, when secretly they thought you were a completely hopeless case. And when we're finally out of that, it's sort of fascinating to realize that hours of misery caused by spending 15 minutes with somebody who probably actually feels very kindly towards you and genuinely wishes you well. So it sounds like maybe some of you recognize this syndrome. And, now, and also know just how seductively believable this pattern can be. And so we need to bring in some strong wisdom to help to loosen that tight grip that lack mind can have on the psyche. So to put it in Buddhist terms, lack mind is an example of a sankhara, a volitional mental formation, a mental construct that we ourselves have created. And then through our clinging to it, identifying with it, taking it personally, inhabit it as if it was actual reality. Instead of understanding, this is something we're doing to ourselves. And unfortunately, lack mind keeps us locked into that small sense of me that's isolated and disconnected from the human beings around us. And early on in my own practice, lack mind was something that I struggled with for quite a few years. And back then, I really believed that it was something that was unique to me. It was due to my own shortcomings, my specific family and social conditioning. And I believed that by contrast, everyone else had it all together. Everyone else was fundamentally well-balanced and living free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. (laughs) (laughs) And it was only really when I started to be in this teaching role and I started to hear so many people describing similar struggles that I started to understand how common, maybe even universal, this syndrome is. And I had a real taste of that a few years ago now when I decided to teach a series of classes on working with afflictive mental states and ways to transform them. And as a way of just entering into the theme, in the first class I invited people to write two lists. One, a list of anxieties that came up for them in daily life, and two, a list of anxieties that commonly came up for them in relation to Dharma practice. And the lists were anonymous, but I collected them all, and then I just typed them up into a document to share with the group. And if you'd asked me before what kind of things would come up, I probably would have had a pretty good idea. But when I saw the actual list, it was poignant, it was painful to see how the same themes, the same phrases came up over and over. The single phrase, not good enough, that came up multiple times. And then there were many variations of that phrase. Not having enough money, not being smart enough, not working fast enough, not being worthy enough. And then the second major theme was around rejection, abandonment, not belonging. So, for example, fear of failure, 
fear that people won't like me for who I am. Fear of being alone. Fear of being outside a family or a tribe. Fear of being found out as a fraud. Maybe some of you recognize similar patterns or beliefs in yourself. And I wanted to share just a few examples, not only to normalize them, but to what was striking to me was that this was a self-selected group of Dharma-oriented people who were interested in understanding themselves and who were already, to some extent, oriented towards practicing wisdom and compassion. And still there was that deep sense for so many of them of unworthiness and fear of rejection. And at the same time, almost all of them felt that they were the only ones experiencing it. So it was quite a revelation when they read the list that the group had come up with. So again, just to try to normalize how common this is, and perhaps even seeing the universality of it might bring in a little more compassion, self-compassion. So now we come to the close cousin of lack mind, which is comparing mind. As I mentioned, the Buddha recognized this and has a word uh, in Pali is mana. And this term mana is usually translated into English as conceit. But that can be a little distorting because in English the word conceit we usually think of as thinking of ourselves superior to, better than someone. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking oneself inferior to someone is equally a form of conceit. And so is thinking oneself the same as others. So maybe the English word conceiving rather than conceit might be a better translation. Because conceiving has that sense of doing something, concocting or constructing or conceptualizing. And what we're conceptualizing or conceiving is a distorted understanding of ourselves and of others. This comparing mind can also operate in the context of our own lives. So we compare ourselves to how we used to be in the past. This is particularly common with aging. Or we anticipate how we're going to be in the future, hopefully better. And we often see this on retreat, where we get um, caught up in comparing what happened in the last retreat, and when's that going to happen again, or let's hope that doesn't happen again, or maybe the next retreat's the one where I'm really going to get it once and for all. But from the Buddha's perspective, all of these comparisons are distortions delusion because they imply a fixed identity that continues from the past to the future and when we look more closely that identity is usually someone who needs to improve to get better to make progress and we see that sometimes even in one sitting we sit down and maybe sometimes at the start we'll be like right this is going to be the one where I get it. Mind's going to be really settled and still. Deep samadhi is going to develop. The awakening factor is going to come into play. And is it happening yet? <laughs> How's my calm? That's not really there. What about concentration? That's not so. Where's that bliss they keep talking about? 
Comparing mind is at work again. Now this is not to say that we don't want to be aware of the state of the mind. But I like to make a distinction between judgment and discernment. So judgment usually has a sense of self at the center of it. Whereas discernment is just a clear seeing, a simple recognition when there are skillful states are present and when they're absent. So we definitely want to understand the presence or the absence of skillful states. But we can know that without solidifying it and referring it back to a sense of me, the one who's supposed to be in control and who's responsible for micromanaging the whole process. (laughs) So, just to come back to what are some of the antidotes that help us to release the grip of these painful patterns. Again, I'm going to use the template of the two wings of wisdom and compassion. And remembering that part of what the insight is in insight practice is seeing insight into impermanence. Everything changes. Nothing gives us lasting satisfaction. So it's unsatisfactory or imperfect. And there's no fixed, permanent entity or identity at the center of it all that I could call myself. So putting this in Buddhist terminology, these are the three marks of existence or the three universal characteristics, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, not-self. Or to use slightly different language, seeing that impermanent, imperfect and impersonal nature of experience, because things are changing, they're impermanent. Because of that change, can't give us lasting satisfaction. It's imperfect. And it's not our fault. Everything happens due to causes and conditions. It's impersonal. The more deeply we understand and see into these three characteristics, the more they support ease and happiness, peace and freedom. The opposite is also true. The more we resist these insights, the more we suffer. So we can use these understandings as a powerful ally to help release these powerful, deeply conditioned sankara. So the first one, anicca, the understanding of change. Usually when some afflictive thought pattern comes up, we clamp down on it we push it away, we get into a struggle with it and that very struggle tends to solidify it make it last longer so the counter move is to recognize this will change we can invite ourselves just to ride it out knowing this too shall pass this too shall pass perhaps not in the time frame we would like but definitely at some point it will change Or we might experiment with some of the equanimity phrases, particularly the ones that acknowledge impermanence. So for example, may I open to how it is right now, because this is how it is right now. 
And that right now is pointing to the fact that it will change at some point. The painful state will disappear again due to causes and conditions. And understanding this helps release the grip of trying to control it, struggling to get rid of it. Often what happens though is that we tend to collapse in to the afflictive state and unconsciously make it feel more solid, more permanent, more real by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So in the context of the Eightfold Path, right or wise speech, normally we think of that as being our external speech. But as that practice refines, we can start to bring that same commitment to non-harming to our inner speech. And Di mentioned this, was it this morning, I think, in relation to the writer who realized she spoke more kindly to her not very intelligent and farty dog than she did to herself. So we can recognize that. And what's it like? to start to see if we can, if we're serious about commitment to non-harming speech, what about in here? So I started to get interested in how I was talking to myself, particularly when I was in those afflictive states. And what I realized, that often I was making what psychologists call eternalizing statements. So I'm always anxious. I never experience any calm. And constantly get it wrong. And words such as always and never, these are symptoms of what's known as absolutist thinking. And this is a style of thinking that psychologists recognize is often linked to anxiety and depression. So just to notice always, never, constantly, continuous and so on. In Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you happen to notice this kind of language coming up, you might experiment, play with it, see if you can change the inner language to something that's actually more accurate, more factually true. So rather than saying, I'm always anxious, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Rather than saying, I never experience any calm. I haven't had that much experience of calm or tranquil states in my practice yet. Or I'm constantly getting it wrong. Might be, I sometimes feel like my practice isn't going as well as it could. Do you hear the difference? Mm -hmm. In one, there's a collapsing or solidifying it making permanent and in the other there's a little bit more room for possibility, for play, for difference and even just that small acknowledgement it can, that small acknowledgement that these difficult states are not as permanent as we'd like to believe that can help soften their hold on us now sometimes when I try to tell people that their mind states are not as permanent as they like to believe Occasionally people try to convince me that I'm wrong. (laughs) Their painful patterns have always been there. They always will be. And will continue into the future forever and ever. Amen. And so sometimes 
one tool that can be helpful to challenge this is to think about the intensity of the state on a scale of 0 to 10. So if we take anxiety as an example, perhaps 10 is a full-blown panic attack and 0 is completely calm. And when people remember to check this throughout the day, usually they see that the degree of the anxiety is constantly, I shouldn't be saying constantly, but is changing. At times it's much lower than they might normally have noticed. And again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, it can be really helpful to recognize, to let in, when there are moments of relative reduced anxiety and maybe even abide in those times. So fully letting in, how does the body, the heart, the mind feel when the anxiety is reduced? So in this process, we're sort of resetting the nervous system to allow non-anxiety to become more the default. So that's using impermanence, the lens of impermanence, to help see the changing nature of these afflictive states. And then the second of the three characteristics, which is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, imperfection, this also can help to reduce the power of these patterns. Now, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, it can be hard to accept because, not only because of our individual conditioning, but our collective societal conditioning, there's this drive internally and externally to make everything better and even better to make everything perfect. And this is just our default. Most of us put a huge amount of energy in trying to control our external circumstances, try to make all the conditions around us, even the people around us, be exactly the way we want them to be. And there's often a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X or Y or Z, then everything will be okay and then I'll be happy. But in spite of all that effort, not many of us can say that we have experienced that lasting happiness that we keep hoping for. Now, of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, because of the truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable, changing. They can't give us lasting satisfaction. And this is true of we ourselves. We're never going to be perfect. And that's okay. That's reality. So acknowledging the truth of unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean just giving up completely and letting ourselves be driven by all of these painful states because, oh, it's just all dukkha anyway. That would be apathy rather than true acceptance. So what we can do is look less judgmentally about what's going on, discern what we can change and accept what we can't. So often, though, as Dai was exploring with the hindrances, there's just that resistance. They shouldn't be happening. They're wrong. They're bad. They're a problem. We need to get rid of them as soon as possible. But with the understanding of dukkha, we understand this is part of the human condition. We have vulnerable human bodies, vulnerable human hearts, vulnerable human minds, and we are just susceptible at times 
to greed, to hatred and delusion. And this understanding of the truth of unsatisfactoriness, of imperfection, it can be a powerful antidote to the tendency to misuse our practice as a self-improvement project. And often this self-improvement project is rooted in idealism, which in turn leads to unseen or unconscious self-aversion. And that idealism means we can never live up to the impossible standards that we, th- we think we're supposed to meet. And just to acknowledge that unfortunately, after the time of the Buddha, some of the language of the suttas, the way they were transmitted, has become quite idealistic. And it can reinforce this sense of unworthiness. For example, we might hear references to unconditional kindness, boundless compassion. We hear the list of all the rights in the Noble Eightfold Path, the right thought and the right speech and the right effort and the right mindfulness. And some of that language almost feels like it's designed to fire up the inner critic. And to the inner critic, nothing will ever be good enough. I hear this from a lot of people. I'm not doing it right. I don't get it. I'm useless meditating. I'll never be good enough. I know that from my own experience, but also from sitting with so many people and hearing variations of that theme. And not that long ago, I was listening to someone who was sharing that syndrome, I'll call it, for shorthand, how they just weren't getting it, they just weren't doing it right. And at one point they explicitly said, I'll just never be good enough. And it suddenly hit me that they were right. And so I said to them, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You'll never be good enough. And they looked a bit startled. I think they were hoping for me to say, no, you're fine, you're doing well, don't worry. But what I realized in that moment was that when we're in the grip of that inner critic or inner tyrant, it is insatiable. And nothing we can do is going to satisfy it. We could become the next Buddha, a fully awakened being, and the inner critic would still find something wrong with us. So it's helpful here to understand the truth of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, imperfection, as a way to soften that harsh idealism that we carry in relation to ourselves, and learning to accept that nothing is perfect, including us, can help soften that relentless self-improvement that drives so many people. Now, even though we might understand this in theory, most of us still have that tendency to take our afflictive mind states very personally. And again, in terms of wisdom, in terms of insight practice, this is a distortion to take what's impermanent, changing, unsatisfactory, and create a fixed, solid self who dwells at the center of it all. That is a distortion and one that's a source of so much suffering. And again, not so easy to understand. But as a general rule, the more painful the thought patterns are, the more deeply rooted they are, the more likely we are to take them personally, to make them me 
mine, who I am. And again, our inner language can be very revealing here. And often what it reveals is this tendency to identify with and to take ownership of these states. So, similarly as before, we tell ourselves, well, I'm just an angry type, that's who I am. Or I'm a victim of workplace bullying. Or I'm a highly realized meditator. Now, all of those statements, they could have some partial truth. But when they're expressed like that, they tend to become prisons that keep us stuck in relating to the world in just one way. So again, just starting to notice this sort of self-reinforcing language and changing how we express the statements can be very freeing. For a while in my practice, I started to get really interested in anything I was telling myself that started with the two words, I am, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And to really notice what I was telling myself, I am X, I am Y, I am Z. And I was shocked when I really listened to that to realize that most of what I was saying there was not true. At best, it was partly true, temporarily true, but it was pretty much never as fully true as that I am statement was trying to convince myself. So again, we can play with language. So instead of saying, I'm an angry type, might become, under certain conditions, I have a tendency to express irritation and frustration. Or instead of, I'm a victim of workplace bullying, might eventually become, in a highly toxic work environment, I found it hard to stand up for myself. Or, I'm a highly realized meditator, might become, right now in this meditation session, the practice feels to be going well. (laughs) So again, you hear the difference. There's a, a little more spaciousness, a little more freedom, when we can use more nuanced language and not collapse our whole identity into something. Okay, so, so far I've mostly been exploring the wisdom wing of the practice using the lenses of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self to help see through these patterns. But as I mentioned last night, for all of us there are times when these patterns get such a grip on us that the mindfulness, the clarity can't get any headway. And usually this is because there's something in the heart that needs more attention. So at these times we might need to turn to the compassion wing and to look very directly at the painful emotions that often are keeping the afflictive thought patterns locked in place. So compassion is almost a universal antidote here for any kind of afflictive state. And yet for so many people, it's compassion, and particularly self-compassion, that can be incredibly challenging. And just the idea of self-compassion can bring up difficult reactions for many people, including myself earlier on in the practice. So we need to, because self-aversion and self-loathing are so widespread, we need to have a great deal of patience for ourselves if the movement towards self-compassion is feeling difficult. 
So I've shared with some of you before, a few years ago I read a short paper by Paul Gilbert, who's a psychologist working in the field of self-compassion. And he's written papers about the challenges that many people face when they're trying to develop more warmth and kindness towards themselves. So I'll share you just a little bit of what he's written to get a sense of how difficult it can be. He says, Commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginnings of the experience of warmth and kindness can actually ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. And this usually indicates a fear of experiencing self-compassion. Further exploration might reveal that the person is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And some people think that they'll be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So if you recognize any of that, the invitation is to be very patient, very gentle, just acknowledging we're touching into some very deep psychological condition. And often the invitation to turn towards compassion can bring up pretty powerful resistance. So I've shared with some of you before an experience I've had working with some people who tell me they just can't do self-compassion practice because they can't find phrases that feel realistic or authentic. And working with phrases isn't the only way of practicing with self-compassion, but it is one of the most traditional ones. And so there was one occasion where I was working with someone and they said they just couldn't come up with authentic phrases. So we started to explore together what feels true for you, what would be a realistic or authentic compassion phrase. And we played around together and eventually we came up with something that sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention <laughs> to eventually move in the general direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. We wrote those phrases down and the person agreed to say them three times in the morning when they first woke up. And when I spoke to them a month later, they said it was starting to work. So even that much, even the tiniest little drop can start to have an impact. So we can be creative with the phrases that we use. Or as I said, don't use because we don't need to use phrases. Sometimes a more embodied gesture just a hand on the heart or on the cheek or on the shoulders a moment to pause to breathe in, to breathe out anything at all that helps soothe the nervous system there's a lot more I could say about this but hopefully out of compassion I don't want to make this too long of a talk so just to acknowledge that sometimes people have fears about developing self-compassion because they see it as somehow self-indulgent 
they're worried that it will make them self-centered. But when self-compassion is supported by wisdom, the wisdom piece helps it to become actually a powerful gift to the world. And although in the context of a silent retreat like this, it might seem like we're practicing compassion just for our own benefit, the more we do this for ourselves, the more possible it becomes to also meet the suffering of our families, our communities, the world, with the same compassion. Our practice starts to shift from being self-centered to other-centered, or maybe more accurately, non-centered, because the distinction between self and other starts to fade away. So later on in the development of Buddhism, this fusion of wisdom and compassion it became more explicit in the development of the bodhisattva ideal. And the bodhisattva is someone who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find a way out of suffering too. And whether or not this ideal resonates with you personally at this point, you might still connect with the underlying understanding there that all of this effort that we're making is a benefit not only to we ourselves, but to everyone that we come into contact with. So in the spirit of helping us to connect to our deepest aspirations, I'd like to close with a few of my favorite lines from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, which is a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Some of you may have heard this passage a few times, but just see if you can hear it tonight with new ears. It's a long uh, passage, but I'll just read you a couple of verses from it. It says, May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.